0: That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know.
1: There's plenty to celebrate in March and... Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's Radio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? So originally, I was going to do a a Tech Stuff Tidbits today to talk about something I just think is cool, which is really the history of vinyl record sales uh, here in the United States. But uh, it quickly grew beyond Tidbits size. No big surprise there. Y'all know me. I'm... Chatty Cathy at the best of times. But I thought we could look at a technology that traces its history to really the 19th century, the late 1800s, and then evolved and grew gradually until it became a dominant technology that waned in the 1980s, really hit its lowest point in the 2000s, and then starting around 2006 and continuing for 17 years has really made a comeback. So, yeah, I am talking about the vinyl record, baby. Now, I love vinyl records. I have a very small collection of vinyl records myself. I know people who have huge libraries of vinyl. I am not that person. Uh, I would love to have a huge library of vinyl, but I just have a, a modest collection, a couple of hundred records. Now, nothing in my collection is rare. Nothing is particularly special beyond the connection I feel to the recording itself and the musical artists that are represented. So it's really just my own small library of records that I like to listen to on occasion. And there is a ritual to listening to a vinyl record because there are so many steps that are involved uh, physical steps that you must take to listen to vinyl records. And I truly believe. That it's a combination of the technology and the steps you have to take to use that technology that create a very special situation that uh, enhances our connection to the music that's recorded on that medium. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not one of the true believer audiophiles out there who swears that a vinyl record produces better sound than, say, high-quality digital recording you would get on, like, a compact disc. There are too many factors involved to make that kind of sweeping declaration. There are those who will swear that analog formats are just by themselves superior to digital formats. I think it gets way more complicated than than that. There's everything from the quality of the recording master, uh, the type of stylus that your tabletop uses, uh, the kind of motor setup that the turntable has, uh, that can all affect music quality all on its own. And that's before you even get to stuff like preamps, amplifiers, speakers, cables, etc. Plus, hearing and listening, that involves psychology, right? That involves the gray matter in our noggins. So it's not just technology. And that means that my experience is at least to some degree unique to me. And that someone else who was standing in the exact same spot where I stood and listening to the exact same recording on the exact same equipment is going to have a different experience than I did. Now, it might not be vastly different. It might not even be something that they can identify or communicate. We might talk with each other and not find any differences. But the fact is, their experience will be, at least to some degree, unique to them, and mine will be unique to me. So... It's just like Westley said in *The Princess Bride*: audio quality is subjective. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. I might have paraphrased that. So, I am not here to say that vinyl records provide the superior acoustic experience. I I don't believe they necessarily do. I think they can, depending upon all the other factors at play here. But it's more complicated than just what format is the music in? Is it in uh, you know analog versus digital? Is it on vinyl versus cassette versus compact disc versus MP3? However, the activity of listening on vinyl has other values beyond audio quality. So for one thing, a long playing vinyl, an LP or an extended play vinyl, EP, those are big. You know, they can measure Typically 10 inches in diameter, that's 25 centimeters, but they can be up to 12 inches, that's 30 centimeters. And that means these records, these discs of vinyl, have to fit into a sleeve and then a cover that's even larger than the disc is, right? And this actually gives artists a fairly large canvas to work with when it comes to designing album cover art, which for a while ended up becoming kind of a forgotten art form. So, Part of the ritual of listening to vinyl, specifically to LPs and EPs, is admiring that cover art. Now, some album cover art is, to put it lightly, bad. Some of it is hilariously bad. So, if you want to laugh, you can do a Google image search for the album Gary, Getting Down to Business. That's Gary, G A R Y. So, it features Gary Solomon on the cover striking a, uh, Well, let's be kind. We'll call it a dramatic pose. And it most certainly is a product of the late 1970s. And viewed through the modern lens, it will look funny to you. Maybe you would want to recreate it, ironically. And maybe eventually it would become unironic and that just becomes your thing. No judgment here. Maybe if you're a Simpsons fan and you happen to love that meme where Homer slowly walks backwards into some bushes in order to disappear... You should look at the Entree Amigos by Camilo Sesto, because it sure does look like Camilo served as the inspiration for that particular moment in The Simpsons. He's standing halfway engulfed in a hedge. And I mean, you look at it and if you've ever seen that Simpsons meme, you immediately think this must be where they got that image. Anyway, other album art can be amazing. Uh, you could get into like the beefcake and cheesecake covers of Molly Hatchet albums because they look like an advertisement for like a cheeky sword and sorcery film or, or a, a you know, a Dungeons and Dragons expansion set or, you know, something like David Bowie's Aladdin Sane album with the simple image of David Bowie from the shoulders up with that lightning bolt makeup decorating his face. The art becomes part of the experience. It is augmenting what the entire album is about. But beyond that, you've got the actual physical actions you have to take, right? There is the action of removing the record itself. So maybe you pull the sleeve out of the cover and then you take the album out of the sleeve. Uh, Maybe you're a rebel and you just try to remove the album and leave the sleeve inside the cover. Uh, Or maybe you're really living on the edge and you lost the sleeve years ago and now you just Put a record directly into the unprotected cover. You do you, okay? I mean, if you want to, if you want to scratch up the vinyl, oh, okay, no, no, no. Whatever you do is fine. So you carry this vinyl long-playing album over to your turntable, and you gently place the vinyl so that the hole lines up with the spindle and settles down on the platform. You lift the tone arm with the stylus on the end up. You position that stylus at the outer edge of the LP, you very softly and gently set it down, and you have it catch on the groove of the LP, and then you prepare to listen to some music. Depending on the album, you might be taken on a journey, one where the artists carefully planned out that sequence of songs, the order of the tracks, specifically intending to inspire particular moods or reactions. Maybe it's even a concept album that tells a story, either one that is overtly obvious or one that's just merely hinted at. Halfway through your journey, you have to pause because the needle has reached the center of the album, having followed a groove that spirals inward until it gets to the end. And then you have to lift the tone arm up, move it out of the way. Flip the vinyl record over, settle it back over onto the spindle again, move the tone arm with the stylus to the edge once more, and play side two, and your journey continues. It's like getting a little intermission in the middle of a play. Of course, some albums include more than one disc, right? That means you're not really halfway through when the stylus gets to the center. Maybe you're a quarter through or an eighth through. So you'll be doing this a few times if you plan to listen to this album all the way through, but it's all part of that ritual. Now, there's no rule saying that you have to listen to an entire side of an album start to finish uh, or even the full album start to beginning. There's no rule saying you have to do that. However, it is a little more challenging to do something like go to a specific track on the album if it's not the first one on either side. You can do it, but it's not easy. Uh, There's also no easy way to skip or to go back and listen to the same track again. It's not convenient. And unless you have one of the very few models that experimented with the idea, it's not portable either. So I think it's fair to say that vinyl doesn't lend itself to every type of listening situation. It is not convenient. It is not portable. It is not for every kind of listening environment. But for a specific kind of listening, it's fantastic. At least if the album's good. Now, I've done several episodes on the history of recorded audio, so I'm not going to repeat everything I've talked about before. But I do want to give some context so that we understand why the vinyl albums are the way they are. Because that experience of sitting down to listen to a full album evolved over time. It didn't just magically manifest. The actual medium would shape things like music and collections of music. For example, if you've ever wondered why most songs tend to be between three to four minutes long, the restrictions of technology helped determine that. Now, songs were already kind of naturally falling into that length. It was just sort of a comfortable length for a song to be. But the medium itself would create restrictions that meant that you really had to conform to that length, and it kind of made it a standard. The medium is why artists would create collections of songs to release at the same time, and why they typically do so in groups of 10 or 12 songs. Or, if you're an artist like Meatloaf, 6 to 8 songs, because your songs are all freaking epics. Conversely, the Ramones' first album had 14 tracks, 7 to a side. Some of those tracks only lasted about a minute and a half, so your mileage may vary. But the medium shaped all of this, and created the trends that we see carried through to this day. I would say long after the medium itself had sort of faded away, we saw those trends continued. However, I can't say that it faded away because as I mentioned at the top of this episode, for the last 17 years, it's been making a serious comeback. All right, so let's get into a pretty simple early history lesson of the LP in particular. So the precursor to Flat, Discs, recorded discs, were wax cylinders. There were also tin cylinders, T I N, but wax cylinders became, you know, kind of the standard. These could hold recorded audio, but they were not easy to store the physical cylinders. You had to have like a box and you had to be very gentle with them. They also would wear out relatively quickly because the wax would start to degrade with each playback. The, the stylus being used would essentially be carving more into the groove. So each successive playback would be a little worse than the one that came before it. In the late 19th century, an inventor named Emil Berliner came up with the idea of recording audio to a flat disc as opposed to a cylinder. And he figured that if he could devise a way to do that it might be possible to create a means of mass production, which wasn't really possible with the cylinders of the time. See, cylinders were using devices that could both record and play back audio. But if you could create a way of just recording audio to a blank, you know, a, a disc that has nothing on it, you could do that much more quickly than you would recording in real time to a wax cylinder so that you could play back in real time later on. It would be something that would allow the business to scale and become something more than just a curiosity for the wealthy. So he got to work. His first version used a disc made of zinc coated in beeswax and gasoline and then put through an etching process where an an acidic compound etched away at a groove that was made in the disc. And I, I talk about this more in other shows that go into the detail of the history of vinyl and and recorded audio, so I'm not going to retread all of that. But these discs could only record to one side at first, due to the process that Berliner was using at the time. So it wasn't a double-sided album. He received a patent for his invention in 1887. Now, the zinc discs were not meant to be the final product. Instead, these served as a master recording. So Berliner would then electroplate this disc to create a negative so in, instead of there being grooves, you would get ridges where the grooves had been, and the disc could be used as a stamp, and you could use it to stamp blanks to imprint the grooves into the blanks. Now, these blanks would need to be pliable for the stamping process, but then strong enough to withstand playback. Initially Berliner tried celluloid, which could make a really good uh, you know, recording. But it was far too delicate and it would wear out very, very quickly. So that was out. Uh, There were some celluloid records produced. There are a few that still exist, but celluloid itself is a very delicate material and it can rot over time. So there are very, very few existing celluloid records today. Okay, we're just getting started. When we come back, I'll talk more about the development of the record disc. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sites that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road into the wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan you can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go, no need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
0: All right, we're back. We left off with Berliner working with celluloid and deciding that was not a very good material to use for records. Next, he tried hard rubber. And this would involve heating the rubber blanks to a temperature so that they became soft enough to stamp. And at first he felt these were far superior to celluloid because they could hold up to a lot more abuse. They were almost unbreakable being made out of hard rubber. But the trouble was quality control because sometimes the stamps didn't leave a perfect imprint. So you could end up with blank spots where there should be a groove. And that meant that once the stylus hit the blank spot, it could just slide across the record. And, you know, it was no good. It just wasn't reliable enough to be able to produce uh, in mass without lots of potential problems. So Berliner's solution was to work with a company called Duranoid, which made a shellac compound for coating electrical parts. Shellac is a resin and it comes from bugs. So shellac is Actually, it's extracted from the secretions made by a lac bug, and it's used for all sorts of stuff, like including glaze on candies and pills. It also has insulator properties, so it made it great for coating electric components. You could insulate that so that you're not going to get shocked when you handle the things. And then there's the fact that it's really good at holding a shape, though it can be brittle. So Berliner felt that the shellac-coated records were superior to the hard rubber ones. The stamping process was far more reliable, and so Berliner switched to shellac. By the late 19th century, right before the turn of the 20th century, Berliner and some investors were creating companies, uh, several over the years, all with the name Gramophone incorporated in them. That was kind of the name of Berliner's technology. But while the medium had evolved, the equipment used to play the media was slower to change. So early playback machines used hand-cranked systems. So that meant you had to sit there and you had to turn a crank in order to listen to your recorded album. The ideal sweet spot for speed would be to crank at a speed fast enough to get uh, 70 to 80 revolutions per minute because that's where the recorded audio on shellac discs sounded the best. But if you crank too quickly, you get chipmunks. If you crank too slowly... Everyone becomes a basso profundo singer, like Patrick Page in Town. And if you're unsteady, then you get a real warbly playback. And it wasn't ideal. So there's an era of innovation then in creating a motorized turntable that is both strong enough to work with the heavy tone arms of the time, because back then the tone arms put a lot of pressure on discs. That's why they would wear out so quickly if they weren't made of durable material. And the stylus was made out of steel. So you really did have to have something that could withstand some some damage and some uh, torture in order to, to be a, a long-lasting product. So the motorized movement needed to be consistent and smooth and strong enough to provide good audio quality, and that took a while. Now, another thing that helped shape both the medium itself and the music upon it was the rotational speed of these motors and the design of the albums themselves. So if you designed an album to be played at 78 rotations per minute, you would get superior sound quality, but the stylus would travel the groove pretty quickly, right? Because it's rotating 78 times every single minute. So things would sound good, but you could not store very much music per disc side because the groove for a piece being played back at 78 RPM would have to be longer than one played at a slower speed. So if you designed the disc so that the recording was meant to be played back at a slower speed, like at 45 rotations per minute, or even 33 and one third rotations per minute, you could store more audio on the side of a disc, but the quality of that audio would suffer. So even in the days of hand cranking, like I said, the ideal rotational speed was somewhere in the 70 to 80 RPM range. So how did the music industry settle on the standard speeds? Well, 78 RPM uh, is very convenient when you start looking at things like gear ratios. So the motors that they were using to drive the turntables had their own rotational speed, 3,600 revolutions per minute. So by using a gear system, you could create a gear ratio of, say, 46 to 1. And a 46 to 1 ratio gear would convert that 3,600 revolutions per minute down to 78. Technically. 78.26. So the turntable speed was set largely because of the actual limitations of the motor, the fact that it was at 3600 revolutions per minute and you know creating a ratio that would allow you to step that down to a more manageable speed for the turntable itself meant that you could go down to 78 which again was in that sweet spot between 70 and 80 rpm. So sort of the stars aligned for this particular type of of Implementation, but other gear ratios could produce the speeds of 45 RPM or 33 and a third RPM without having to change the type of motor that you were using to drive the whole darn thing. Now, these days you could have had a variable speed motor and you could completely change the technology of pressed records entirely, but now it's kind of a legacy system, so no one has really bothered. A couple of people have tried, but only small experiments. So the speed of the motor sort of determined everything else. So 78 RPM became the preferred format for early records. And even with a 10-inch disc, that meant you could store about three minutes of audio per side. And again, while many songs already fell into that length restriction, the medium really helped cement it as the standard song length. It was a limit of the medium. So if you wanted to sell a lot of records and have people go gaga over your music, you really wanted it to be high-quality stuff and you know, not sacrifice the, the sound quality, the fidelity of your recording, but you would sacrifice how long your track could be because you were limited to about three minutes. And think about that. These 10-inch discs were singles. They could usually hold a single track per side, which is a pretty big disc to hold one song. It was pretty wild. And it would dominate for decades, well into the 1950s. So now we're going to do a quick jump ahead. So others at the time of Berliner were trying to come up with alternatives because they wanted to get into this market, but they did want to have to pay Berliner for his technology. So like Edison was one of those. And they were trying to come up with uh, alternatives to Shellac, too, and really to compete with the gramophone company. But the alternatives were often more expensive. So they had very little effect in breaking into the market. People didn't want to have to buy new equipment and spend even more money to purchase the you know, albums themselves. So even as early as the 1920s, you had people experimenting with plastic. And by the 1930s, the technology was ready to go in some early implementations. But there were some problems. One was that companies were making boneheaded mistakes. But another was just that the economy in general was not good. Just like today, we were in a really bad time of economic uncertainty in the 1930s. The U.S. was in the Great Depression, and the cost of a record player, and then on top of that, the cost of records to play on the record player, that was a luxury that very few were willing to pursue. A radio set, while also being very expensive, at least had the advantage of providing the content for free. Well, sort of free. Like my show, the content was sponsored by companies paying to have their products and services highlighted on the air. So not really free, but free to the consumer. The plastic records were still a thing behind the scenes, however. DJs at radio stations were using them, but there wasn't much of a consumer market for vinyl or plastic records until the end of World War II. Partly that was because the war had put high demands on various materials and manufacturing facilities, which prioritized war efforts over stuff like, you know, civilian comforts and luxuries, which is understandable. But after the war, things would change. In 1948, an invention from Dr. Peter Goldmark would make a huge impact on the recording industry. So Goldmark devised a way to create microgrooves on vinyl, a type of of PVC plastic. And these microgrooves allowed for a couple of really big advantages. It was possible to create long-playing, or LP, albums, And you could reduce the rotational speed to 33 and one third rotations per minute without an appreciable dip in audio quality. So that meant that a disc could hold way more than three to five minutes per side. Now it could hold more than 20 minutes per side. So you could put way more content on a single disc, particularly a 12 inch disc, than you could in the past. Now, RCA Victor, which had attempted to introduce the 33 and a third album more than a decade earlier, uh, that when I was talking about there being companies that made boneheaded decisions, I was referencing RCA Victor at the time. It was a massive flop when they tried to introduce it in the 30s. They decided in the late 40s to challenge Goldmark and Columbia Records, which was the company that was making use of Goldmark's technology. So, RCA introduced the 7-inch record disc, designed to be played at 45 revolutions per minute. So the 45 could hold about as much music as the 78 10-inch discs could, with the same level of fidelity. So they were arguing you're getting the maximum fidelity performance at a smaller form factor so it's more convenient, which was debatable. Uh, Both of those were debatable. But these two form factors, the 33 and a third LP and the 45 seven-inch disc, were incompatible with one another. So obviously, they required different speeds, rotational speeds, to play back the music appropriately. Although, if you've ever played a 33 and a third record on the 45 setting or vice versa, you can get some pretty fun experiences out of that. Like you can you can turn a long-playing album into a Chipmunks album. Or a 45, you can turn into something that's really creepy. Uh, the song Stayin' Alive, played on a 45, but at 33 and a third RPMs, becomes a horror movie song. It's fantastic. Anyway, RCA Victor's album form also had a larger hole in the center, and you had to use a, a thicker spindle or later an adapter. And this was probably a decision to make the two formats even more incompatible. <laughs> Like, it was trying to make sure that the two could not be played on the same machine. And this set up a pretty cutthroat competition in the market for a couple of years, with, like, each company trying to muscle the other one out. But by 1950, RCA grudgingly began to license Columbia's system and began to produce its own 33 and a 3rd albums, because the 45s were really only good for singles. That You couldn't sell a full album on 45s. You would have to sell you know, five or six 45s per album uh, because they just couldn't hold that much music per side. Columbia, for its part, began to produce 45 albums in order to push out singles because, again, that form factor was great for singles and B-sides, but not so great uh, if you wanted to do an LP. So both companies essentially, after fighting each other fiercely for a couple of years, begrudgingly adopted the other Uh, company's formats. Now, if you have an older turntable, or perhaps one of the boutique kinds made for audiophiles, you may actually have three settings for rotation speeds, the 33 and a third, the 45, and the 78. But a lot of tables ditched 78 entirely because the industry pretty much did the same thing back in 1950. Most of the records produced after 1950, were firmly either in the 33 and a third LP camp or the 45 single and B-side camp. The world began to embrace vinyl, and sales figures climbed year over year. And according to the RIAA, aka the Recording Industry Association of America, which in other episodes of Tech stuff serves as the villain of the piece, vinyl sales in the United States peaked in 1978. So that year, people bought more than 340 million LPs or EPs, so long-playing albums or extended-playing albums in the United States. These made up nearly half of all music format sales across every format, and they were the dominant format of the time. Now, I was born in the 70s, and that might explain why I have such a fondness for the vinyl format. Some of my earliest memories involve listening to records with my family, My parents had tons of vinyl record albums. I remember listening to The Beatles and John Denver and Linda Ronstadt. I also remember listening to comedy records from groups like Beyond the Fringe, uh, the Firesign Theater and Monty Python. And those experiences were great. But something was about to happen that would be another massive change to the music industry. I'll explain more after we come back from this quick break. Go to att.com slash in-car wi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. and. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road into the wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go, no need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex. Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
0: All right, we're back. So, what happened? Why did we go from 1978 to a record breaking sales figure for vinyl? to the decline of the format. Well, in 1979, Sony introduced a technology that would create a sea change in the music industry. That technology was the humble Walkman, a portable cassette player. So music cassettes had been around for more than a decade. In fact, they first hit the scene in the 1960s. But for many years, cassette players were these really big stereo components That you would buy. They were expensive, they were bulky, and they took up a lot of space and you had to connect them to other components in your stereo system. And if you already had a record player, you might feel like there's not much point getting a cassette player. Some cassette formats, like the infamous 8-track, saw a brief spotlight moment due to being incorporated into vehicle audio systems. So then you could take your music on the go with you, But the humble audio cassette would really grab the baton in the late 70s and truly take off in the 1980s. So the cassette and the Walkman, and later stuff like in-dash entertainment systems and cars, offered up portability, which was something that vinyl couldn't really do, despite a few efforts that aren't really noteworthy enough to dwell on. And as we would see again and again, things like accessibility portability and convenience can matter just as much or perhaps even more than something like audio quality. So while you might get an irritating hiss in the background of your music that's on cassette, particularly if you're using something like really cheap headphones, well, you could still listen on the go. So that was an advantage. It still wasn't super easy to navigate to a specific track. Uh, I'm reminded of all the times where As a kid, I was riding those rewind and fast-forward buttons like a maniac trying to get to the beginning of a specific song in the middle of one side of a cassette, but the fact that you could take your music on the go changed everything. It only took a few years for cassette sales to not only make a dent in vinyl's figures, but to actually outsell vinyl itself. So depending upon your source, cassettes overtook vinyl sales somewhere around 1983 or 1984. I've seen different citations for that. So the music industry was actually really worried about cassettes at first because they opened up the possibility for piracy, something that you didn't have to really worry about with vinyl. But cassettes were different and the industry would remain worried about piracy for the foreseeable future, because every time there's a media shift, that becomes one of the big concerns. In fact, there are a lot of times where the music industry resists change, and that makes Adoption much slower because of this fear of piracy. However, the industry eventually came around to cassettes because they realized they could do something that they couldn't do before, which was they had the chance to sell the exact same album on two different formats, potentially to the same customer. Uh, Sometimes they would include exclusive content on one format or the other, or both, where you could buy the album on vinyl and you'll get one track, you buy it on cassette, and you get a different track. And so for some people who are super fans, they would end up buying both formats because they wanted to be a completionist. So there were ways for the music industry to make even more money by introducing this new format. Uh, But another big blow to vinyl sales was right around the corner. So cassettes dominated most of the 80s. But the technology of the compact disc, which actually traces its history to the 70s, would leave both cassettes and vinyl behind. So vinyl sales took another blow. Cassettes would be hit even harder, considering how far they had to fall, because vinyl had already fallen due to cassettes. But vinyl was able to hang on. It it increasingly took a smaller part, uh, especially for the consumer side of media, but it didn't die. Remember when I said that vinyl LPs hit their sales peak in 1978? That was specifically for America. If we look at global sales figures, the peak actually happened a little bit later. And we have to turn to the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, which tracks that kind of stuff. And it says the peak of vinyl LP sales globally was in 1981. And that was 1.1 billion units sold worldwide. Now that same group says that the lowest point for vinyl sales worldwide was 2006. That's when just 3 million LPs were sold globally. So think about that. A peak of 1.1 billion units and a low of 3 million. That's a huge drop. However, since 2006, the vinyl industry has been on an upward climb and CD sales while, you know, they were the dominant format for the 2000s, really have been taking a hit. Uh, Partly because of a new means of music consumption, streaming. Once that rose to prominence, that really started to take a bite out of CD sales. And two years ago, in 2021, something really interesting happened. For the first time since the CD took the crown, vinyl sales ended up outpacing CD sales. Yeah, in 2021, more people bought albums on vinyl than they did on CD. And that remained true last year in 2022. So for two years, vinyl has been outselling CDs. So last year, the number of vinyl albums sold in the United States was around 43.46 million units. So 43.46 million in the U.S. alone compared to 3 million units sold globally In 2006, now, I wouldn't say vinyl is dominating, but it's definitely not dead. It's not nearly as dead as folks thought it was back in the mid 2000s. But then, you know, maybe I should say that it is dominating because according to Luminate, 43.4% of all albums purchased in the U.S. last year were on vinyl. Now, that includes not just physical media. It also includes digital formats. So this includes everything from MP3s to compact discs to cassettes to, I don't know, wax cylinders. 43.4% of all sales were on vinyl. When you look at just the physical formats, well, vinyl made up 54.4% of all album sales last year. They really did dominate. But these figures aren't really the ones that truly blow my mind. I mean, yes, they are impressive. And the fact that vinyl has made such a comeback is amazing, especially for someone who was you know, alive when vinyl hit its peak and then also alive when vinyl hit its low. It's amazing to see it have a comeback. But no, the thing that really shocked me was that Luminate found another interesting statistic here. Maybe y'all won't find it shocking at all. Maybe it's not surprising at all to you, but it was to me. So here we go. According to Luminate, about 50% of the folks out there who are buying vinyl don't have a record player. Now, granted, this was discovered in a survey that had a fairly small sample, fewer than 4,000 respondents, around 3,990 or so responded to the survey. And about half of them said that they had bought a vinyl album, but did not own a record player. Maybe when you expand that out to the general music audience, that percentage won't hold. Maybe you won't see it be like a 50-50. But even for a small survey, 50% having no means to play back the media that they have bought, that's banana to me. Now, I suppose some of the explanation here goes back to what I was talking about at the top of the show, about the ritual of playing vinyl. So yeah, you can't actually play the vinyl. If you don't have a record player, that arguably key component of the process is uh, is not accessible to you. However, you do end up having a physical object that represents the thing you love, the music you love, the artist you love. You have something that is tactile. It is real. So it's not this ephemeral file that only exists in digital zeros and ones. It's something that you can hold in your hands and you can look at it. You can admire the album art. A lot of modern vinyl albums come with incredible liner notes that give thoughts about how the, the songs came to be and the, the, what the artists were doing when they were creating the music. Some of them come with other supplemental material like artwork and photography and all sorts of stuff. The vinyl itself might be a work of art. We've left the days of generic black vinyl discs behind, and it's no surprise these days to pull out a vinyl album that's bubblegum pink or day glow blue or even glow in the dark or tie-dye in all sorts of colors. The vinyl is a collectible and a physical object that connects the audience to the music, even, I guess, if they can't actually play the music that's on that disc. And I do get that. Music is capable of encouraging strong emotional bonds. There are certain songs I listen to when I'm in a particular mood because the music emphasizes feelings. Sometimes that might not even be the feeling that the artist was intending to impart, but that's okay. The way the audience consumes art and what the artist intended don't always align, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. And... Owning something physical seems to make it more real. Like, there really is something going on more than just listening to some music. Now, if you go down that path too far, you start to stray into dangerous parasocial territory. But I do think that celebrating a connection to art is fine. Just, you know, don't project that into a situation where you and the artist uh, or artists are magically besties in your mind and imagination or something. That's not healthy. Now, I guess I'm not quite old enough to just shake my head in confusion at hearing that, you know, half the people who are buying vinyl don't have a way of playing it. I do get it. I mean, I do have collectibles that don't really have any other purpose other than to be collectible, right? Like, I've got things like action figures. I don't play with them. I They're, they're connections to things. Uh, I even have things like Funko Pops that really you can't play with at all. You just look at them. So I do understand collecting things that give you a connection to something you love. I also think that listening to vinyl albums is a really cool celebration of technology, of music, of art, and of your own emotional experience to that art. I highly recommend it if you haven't experienced it. Like I'm not saying go out there and buy a turntable and a bunch of albums. But if you have access to one, I do recommend just sitting down to experience it. It might take a little practice to experience music this way because we have trained ourselves to be more impatient and more demanding. You know, we have expectations for being able to experience music on our terms, not the artist's terms. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just different. You know, we hit that skip button so quickly and I ain't going to lie. A lot of albums have at least one real clunker of a song that screams, hey, this is a good chance for you to go take a bio break. You don't really need to listen to this one. That that happens a lot, at least for me. But with some albums, you might find that listening in this way, where you are sitting down and deliberately listening track to track and having that intermission and having to turn a record over and start it up again. You might find that that experience creates a whole new way to appreciate music that you like. But be warned, it could make it harder for you to listen to tracks in isolation in the future. Uh, There are certain songs where I feel it's incomplete if I haven't heard the track that plays before it, because the artist made such a clever way of one track leading into the next that I feel that it's not really the right experience if I just listened to that one track completely isolated from everything else. Also, before I conclude, there are a couple of other tidbits from that Luminate study that I thought were interesting. So out of all the music genres out there, vinyl sales were most popular in the rock genre. Rock albums made up more than 50% of all vinyl sales. So this is not something that is represented across every genre. Rock really dominates. Uh, Second place was R&B and hip-hop, which also includes rap albums as well. So a pretty big umbrella. And that made up around 18%, a little less than 18% of all sales. Also, nearly half of all vinyl sales were made in independent record stores, which is freaking awesome. I highly recommend seeking out a local record shop in your area. You could find all sorts of gems there. Uh, A lot of independent shops sell both new and used vinyl. And sometimes you'll find stuff that you didn't even know existed that will delight you. Uh, Some of the records you come across might be quirky. Some of them could be really funny when viewed through a modern lens. Some come across as really corny or square or whatever other adjective you'd like to use for not very cool. You know, lame would probably fit for a lot of these albums, but I promise you, Even in those categories, you can find stuff that has a sleeper or two in it. In fact, that's why I think soundtracks for films like Quentin Tarantino's movies or like James Gunn's films, specifically the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, those soundtracks end up being huge hits because they contain tracks that are seriously awesome, but were largely overlooked. And of course, there's new vinyl being pressed every year. It's not all just old vinyl. There's lots of new stuff, bands that are active right now that are pressing albums in vinyl and indie stores carry that stuff too. So if you do have an independent record shop near you, take a trip and check it out. Look at some of those albums, laugh at the cheesy album art and ooh and ah, the really cool ones. You know, maybe pick up a couple of albums, particularly if you have a record player at home, though I won't judge you if you don't. And I just want to give a quick shout out to a couple of independent record stores that I love. Back in Athens, Georgia, where I went to college, there's a shop called Wax and Facts, which still exists, I'm happy to say. When I was in school, they actually had a room of used vinyl where they sold records by the pound. You you paid $1 per pound of records. It didn't matter what albums you picked. So if you came across a rare pressing just by flipping through all the albums, you could get an insane bargain. So a big shout out to my buddy, John, who scored a pressing of... Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell album on red vinyl. That was really cool. And then not too far from where I live today, there's a record store called Criminal Records. It's in the Little Five Points area in Atlanta, Georgia. It's another great spot to buy music and comic books. And it's one of the busiest shops in that little neighborhood. And it attracts a wide variety of music fans. That's another cool thing about vinyl and these independent record shops. They have a broad audience. And when you go to these physical locations, you run into really interesting people. I mean, these are sometimes people who are extremely different from yourself, but you'll find you'll get caught up in conversations about music and art and and collections and things that you thought were really interesting and maybe some lost gems. And it's just a great place to connect with people as well as to the music itself. And all of that is thanks to this technology. So I wanted to, to do this episode, not just to talk about the tech, but to talk about its impact in culture and society, because I, I find that to be the really fascinating piece of technology. Uh, I think all of tech is really cool, but seeing how it interacts with us is really where the magic is for me. And uh, yeah, just thought it'd be fun to talk about this. Also, just big shout out to vinyl, like continuing to climb year over year. The The most recent increases have been more modest but it's still been on the upward track. So uh, I hope to see that continue. And I hope I can go shopping for some new vinyl pretty soon. Hope you're all well. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.